My name is Sarah K. Mooney. I am a member of the Windy Hill Community Group, and I have the privilege of reading scripture for you this morning. You can follow along in your bulletin. And today's passage comes from 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house, And all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I've consecrated this house that you've built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David, your father, walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, and I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them, and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. This is the word of the Lord. Am I on? Okay, thank you. I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here once again at Christ Central Church. And, um, We continue in our sermon series in the book of Kings. Things are getting pretty serious here. Last week we saw the grand opening of God's temple. And the Bible tells us, for those of you who were looking at this passage with us last week, that God's presence comes down like a cloud and takes residence in what is described as God's house. We saw and broke down a beautiful prayer, public prayer by King Solomon that he did before God and the people that day. And in that prayer, Solomon said this at the coming of God into the house. He said this, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, Solomon said, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, God. How much less this house that I have built. And bottom line to that statement by Solomon, that question for a pagan world of of all kinds of gods around them, is that for this God, the God, this temple, this temple was not some kind of God prison or house arrest, or, or them sending God to his room kind of thing. He, God is not appeased or comfortable or makes them comfortable by having him homebound. That his presence here in this house is not saying 
that he is limited by the human architecture of an earthly house. That the square footage is not indicative of the reach and power of his reign. And though Solomon vocally recognizes this fact, God decides to speak on his own accord in chapter 9 here. And God is like, this is really nice and all, and I appreciate the house, the, the parade, the people, the sacrifices with all the festivals, with fireworks, cotton candy, elephant ears, and smoked turkey legs, right? All glory to me, great. But see, y'all don't get lost in the event and hoopla of what it means to have a God. This is not a show. This is not a put on of spiritual drama. I am the real God with real expectations of my people. He is saying here in chapter 9 that, that I am the realest and truest being you human beings will ever experience. And you need to be ready to embrace not only the grace of what I have to offer, but the proper response of gratitude and awe and obedience, of what it means to have me, God, reveal myself as God and you as my people. God is like, if you didn't know, now you know. Not baby, baby, but I'm God. I know some of y'all thinking about Biggie. This ain't Biggie. God comes here in chapter 9 after they build this temple. Not with a rebuke, because they haven't done anything wrong yet, sort of. They are sort of at the, at the wedding reception, man. It's still bliss time. So this is not a rebuke, a redirect. This is what I would describe as a prebuke. Like a prequel, right, of our coming sin against God. Like, like, like a this is what is going to happen if you sin against me, Solomon, and you will. So I'm already going to warn you and read you. Beginning of chapter 9, just like premarital counseling. You know, when we go through the chapters on communicating and fighting and physical and social expectations and the disappointments that go along with that, the disappointments in the one you are so happy with right now. The counselors, many of those of us who are already married know it's going to happen. And sometimes in marriage counseling, it's funny. There is this blank face or, yeah, we, we're good. We're in love. We're not like the people in this marriage guide or our parents. You just want to prebuke them. Out of love for them. In chapter 9, out of love for Solomon and Israel and now you and me, God gives us a prebuke for the sin and brokenness, we will commit and experience with him as God in our lives and world. And there are three things in this prebuke of Solomon that we need to be checked on as well. First, that God's people are called into holy relationship with him. Secondly, that God's people are called to make choices before a holy God. And finally, that God's people are called to face the consequences for their choices before a holy God. First, we are called in a holy relationship. Secondly, we must make choices. And finally, we will face the consequences of those choices. 
Sometimes it's best to think about God's relationship once again with his people as scripture most often illustrates it like a marriage, right? With vows and bottom line to marriage vows, if you've been to, a, been to a wedding and most of you have, is what? That you will not leave or break away from the one you have promised, bound, contracted, and covenanted to. Thus why couples promise, what? In sickness and in health, in richer and in poorer, for better and for worse, that I am yours. You're not getting rid of me. Chapter 9 is a clear indication that even if we don't keep our vows as God's people, guess what? He's going to keep his. With heavy commitment to stay with us. And for you note-taking technician types, I'm going to go ahead and give you sub points today. Here are two subpoints. We are called in a holy relationship with God with subpoint A, a God who promises to never leave us. And subpoint B promises to never leave us alone. Look at verses 1 through 5 with me again. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Bottom line, God is promising that according to the vows, the covenant that he has set, that this house is just further proof, it's like physical proof, that he will and is committed to never leave or forsake people that, he, that have called him Lord and Savior and God. He will never leave them. He is there and will do what he promised he will do for them forever. God is promising, according to verse 3, to put his heart and affection, seeing them as important and sincere love into this thing, into this relationship forever. They will not be without that kind of commitment from God as long as they are the people of God forever, forever, ever, right? Just an aside to you, and I brought this up on the giving, who are saying, "Woo." Glad I'm not one of those uh, born-again church folk. I don't have this God ball and chain like they do. I'm spiritually free. I'm just exploring my world, right? I'm spiritually undefined. Not really. See, God has already made his vow and covenant. You may not have read it in the Bible, but I'm going to just go ahead and let you know what the God says to you who are not believers today. He's already made his vow and covenant with all living things. You live in, then you have a vow and covenant with God. All living things and people in particular. And so he has made his vows and connection to common law, shacking up with God in his world, breathing his air like, he, like it's theirs people too. So guess what? God promises to never leave or forsake the vows he has made to you unbelievers who don't call him Lord yet. You're tied. 
to a holy God. Whether you like it, love it, or not. And we should try to be happy about God being that committed to us, right? A holy, committed, never leaving or forsaking God keeps his word all into this relationship thing with you, God. There, wherever you go, there, there, whatever you do, in light, in the dark, when you're high, when you're low. Isn't that awesome? Well, for us who are bound to make mistakes, it's awesome. But it should make us a little nervous, right? Because the Lord is always there watching I was uh, watching some show, and the theme of the show was cyberbullying. And um, they had this virus that would get on people's computers, and it would record everything that they were doing in their room, on their computer, right, behind closed doors. And then they sent out an email that said, we saw what you did, and we're going we're gonna to text it out or email it out to everybody, unless you do the following things, Right? And God is described here, not as a cyber bully, right? But nevertheless, God is described here as putting his heart and eyes where you are. It means God sees it all like a camera with night vision that is everywhere all the time. And then verse 3 says that his heart is there too at all times, which means he takes everything we do or choose or don't choose to do, good and bad, God takes it personally. Which brings me to our second sub-point that God promises to never leave us alone. When I say never leave us alone, this is not the comfortable, not leave us alone kind of commitment. Remember, chapter 9 is not the fun chapter for us, Okay. So just bear with me. I had to bear with it this week. Y'all bearing with it now. I had to hold it all together this week. You think I read the word and it's just kind of something I do as a pastor and just preach it? No, man, this thing has been hammering me all week. So now I, I love company in this. So this is not the comfortable, not leave us alone kind of thing we like to sing about here kind of commitment. But this is the part of the prebuke, right? This is the part of the correction, right? But it means God doesn't give us private lives shut off from his eyes and heart and judgment, kind of not leaving us alone. Look at the, the rest of what he says here to Solomon, beginning at verse, verse um, 6, right? He says, I'm going to be there. My eyes and my heart are going to be there. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. And he says, but if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I've given them and the house that I've consecrated for my name. I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this, this house? Then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. Wow, what are those verses you want to put on your refrigerator? God is saying that once you're in holy relationship with him, he will take personally sin as being against his love. 
against his holy person and promises that he made to us and that he will not let that be okay. I thought I went to a church about grace. No, you went to a church that's about a holy God. He will not let you be okay. And stay okay being in sin. God will see it. Feel it. And then be upset and emotional about it. Our choices of whether to sin or not, obey or not, love him or our neighbors as as he has commanded or not to listen and obey his word or not, it affects God. He is all a part of and never separate from what and who we are and do on a daily, hourly, minute by minute, second by second basis. He is all up in our business and a part of our business of being human beings. And so get this. God is telling Solomon and us that if you do anything against him, separate from his will, running away to their gods, cheating on him as your God, as the one and true God, right? He, he's like, you know, he's going to slash your tires, right? He's a jealous lover. He, God's not into pettiness, but you get my point. Your clothes going to be on the street. In front of everybody. That's what he's saying, right? The rest of the nation is going to walk by. They're going to see your stuff on the side of the road. And God's saying, I told you not to cheat on me. Everybody, oh, my Lord, look at that. His stuff all over the street. Burning up, right? What movie was that? Um, Huh? Who? Waited, y'all know that scene when she took her, his clothes, threw it in that BMW, and lit fire to that thing? What? Don't y'all try it. You go to jail. You will go to jail. Don't even try it. That's what God's saying he's going to do. Nobody knew Terry McMillan read the Bible like that, right? God said, I'm going to put your stuff on the street, the clothes, all the great things you glory in, all the things that make you look fantastic. I'm going to put it in the car, burn it, and all the world's going to see. And I'm right in doing it. I have every right to do it. I'm righteous. You abandoned me. But God's saying, guess what? I'm not going to abandon you in just and complete righteousness. And how I feel and how I have been treated and deserve to be treated as God. God is the one being and person that deserves complete entitlement. God, you're a little entitled here. He's God. His title is God. He's completely entitled to be God. He's saying, I won't run away from being there in better and in worse, visiting and being there, though, with correction and discipline and rebuke, and to personally bring the corrective, loving, fatherly, albeit, pain for his pain, for his glory, for your shame, your sin brings on his name. God will be on it and all over you when you act like you are over him and on to something else. You know, one thing I learned, um, one of my professors did a book on, um, on hell. And I was like, oh, Lord, here we go. And it's not like the cartoon hell. And I've explained this to y'all before. Where Satan's sitting on a little throne. And he's mad. Right? With the pitchfork. No. 
The Bible explains hell is God not abandoning his wrath. Whoa. Right? God fully committed to his wrath of righteousness, right? His righteous wrath, his righteous punishment. So it ain't Satan giving people hell. It's God giving people hell by being there. And the reason I'm telling you this point, God is personally tied to his holiness. That's why he says, my eyes just aren't there. I'm not just some judge who knows the law, went to law school. God went to law school, so he's going to bring the judgment even though he's not personally affected by it. No, God is saying, this is a personal friend. You stole from me. You cheated from me. You kicked me. You kicked dirt on me as God. That's what he's saying. So I'm going to personally deal with it. Told you this one was an easy one this morning. He will never leave you in your life built and working apart and against him and his word alone. All the stuff he's blessed you with from life and all the way to the and all the, the way to the good things, he will not leave us alone to enjoy that without him or in sinful regard to him. He takes his vows seriously. He won't let you and me sit around and shame yourself and him and his holiness and holy name. So our choices matter, which brings us to our second point. God calls us people to make choices before a holy God. And sub points, ready, note takers, sub points. Sub point A under making, God calls people to make choices, making every day everything choices. Sub point B, making choices from the heart. I want to bring your attention to the mere propositional structure of this passage. I'm not going to read it all through again. God talks about himself and his choice to be their God. And look how the rest of the chapter is built. Verse 4, if you. Verse 5, then I will. Right? Verse 6, but if you. Verse 7, right? And then verse 9, then I will. Then this will happen in the rest of the chapter. If then's all over the place. Wouldn't it be awesome to have that be part of the marriage vows at a wedding? If you act like you don't love me, then I'll hit you over the head with a frying pan. (laughs) Or forget your birthday. Or be passive aggressive when I feel like it. Or not go to the movie that I hate and pretend I love it. Okay, maybe that's not good. Okay, I'll still do y'all weddings. I promise I won't do that. But if and then says to us that our choices, choices here to follow God and obey God, are important to God. You don't make arbitrary choices and think that God doesn't care. And we have to make those choices in everything and every day. This is supposed to be hard, y'all. Look at what he says here in verse 4 through 6. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever as I promised David your father, saying, you will not lack a man on the throne of Israel, but if you turn aside from following me, you and your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go after and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword a laughing stock if you will among all peoples okay when he uses the word walk before me to walk in obeying the rules statutes and commandments he is saying in all that you do y'all 
Walk means all of life. Everything. Everywhere. You go and be and do and think. Everything. To make choices here and there and everywhere and everything with God in mind. With your relationship with God in mind as God who has given you his word and commandments concerning the way we work and play and do relationships and family. A peculiar thing here when he talks about Solomon's children having to obey, right? Now this is less about the kids' choices and more about how Solomon has raised them. Whether Solomon chose to teach them the word of God and discipline them, instruct them, and lead them according to how he lived and what he did as a father and king, everything. What God is saying, we need to recognize choices, both big and small, matter in the big picture to God. Which means that we should actually know and learn and continue learning what God requires and wants. Man, I saw y'all sing and order my steps in his word, right? We're calling that we need to order our steps in his word. We need to actually know what God has commanded in the word of God concerning whatever we are doing. It is important that we know how to please and make choices to please God. It's so important to know the word and the ways of God. Real heavy emphasis, we try, on what I would describe as discipling here at Christ Central Church. We sit down and we plan it, right? It's not arbitrary. It's just not like, hey, what would be fun for church people to do? This ain't about fun, right? It's about joy. And you find some fun in it, right? Every turn and opportunity to learn the Bible hopefully imply the truth of your life. From Sunday morning, right? I don't get up here and just sing a song. We go through the Word. I say this, and then I say, look at what your Word says. And I say, look at what your Word says. This is what it means. It's not, it's planned out. I sit down every week. I make sure you guys are getting the Word of God, not the Word of Pastor Brown. Hopefully. Sometimes I get a little bit of me, but hopefully not too much. Then we have Wednesday midweek to Bible studies all over the city, to community groups on Sunday afternoons and evenings, to all of the one-on-one conversations that happen around the Word of God, just getting it in over what God has said and what that means with each other and God himself. It is so very important that you know what God says because you will be held responsible before God for the choices you make about his Word. When I was taking my boys to school on Friday, the scripture of the day was uh, we do on devotion every morning was Joshua 1, meditate on God's truth day and night. That we should meditate on God's word day and night. And I told the boys meditate means to concentrate on and learn what it says and then marinate in it uh, in your mind and heart to volley it around with others who know the Lord, to cook it, to smother it, to fry it, to base it, and let it pour in and through you. And then we all realize together, me too, that that takes time and commitment and we don't do enough. I know how to be Candy Crush. I do. I'm getting better. And I can't wait till the next challenge. I go to bed thinking about the blocks coming together. Well, it's actually not his toy thing. It's not, it, my boys, it's the same thing as Candy Crush. No, it isn't. It's Toy Crush or whatever. And I go to bed, and I'm telling you, I'm sitting in my bed at 11.30, 12, 12.30. Boop, 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 boop. 
figuring out how to make it fit, thinking the colors up in my mind, thinking, ah, I know how to win that puzzle, right? And you do it all kind of stuff. Y'all go to work, work, bed thinking about work. Oh, I got the idea. You go to bed thinking about this and that and this and that. Because you meditate on those things. You give your time and your energy and your actions. You put your fingers to it like you would turn the pages of a Bible, right? You actually commit yourself to those things, and it's on your mind all the time. That's what meditate means. It means that you so bother and mix in and dig into the Word of God that wherever you go, it won't leave you alone. Just like that game won't leave me alone. I'm running around with the sounds of it. I even memorized what the board looks like, y'all. Something wrong with me. I know I'm a little crazy. Brings us to point B. Not only the choices we make, but the choices of our heart. Look at verse 4 real quick. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David my father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keep my statutes and my rules. And this comes from what God promised in verse 3, right? They go hand in hand. God's saying, this is a relationship, this relationship, you do, I do, right? He's saying this in verse 3, and the Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, which you've made before me. I've consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Whoa. God is calling us like him, not only to know and see the truth of making choices, but let the choices come from a heart that has been changed. Oh, now it's going to get really hard. And a heart that's been changed by the choice to know more about God. Y'all ready? God doesn't just want good moral choices. I tell people this all the time. There are a lot more moral people making better choices than a lot of Christians in the world sometimes. But you know what God wants to know? Why are you making those choices? <laughs> oh, Lord, come on. Isn't this like putting together some Ikea furniture just with the pictures we just follow through? Boom, we get something that looks like it's expensive, but it's really cheap and not, Right? God wants some hardwood in his furniture. He just doesn't want veneer. You don't have a God of veneer or look or pretense or show. God is calling us like him, not only to know and see the truth and make it true, but let the choices come from a heart that has been changed, right? And a heart that has been changed by the choice and no more, right? God doesn't want good and moral choices. He wants us to make a heart choice. In other words, he wants our hearts and our desires to choose him in line with what a, our mouth and bodies and lives say on the outside. An old school Puritan theologian said, that, the bottom of every, that at the bottom of every choice, which is an outside action, is a heart. That will, that, that basically, that we choose vanilla because deep down we desire vanilla. I don't know why. Somewhere deep in an unseen place, the volition, the will, the desire drives our decisions. God is saying, make a choice in your heart to follow me. Why? Because if your heart is not in your choices and your heart doesn't eventually catch up with your choices, then you are inauthentic. You are not keeping it real. And so not keeping God's commandments for real. You got to come correct to do correct before God. 
when you're in relationship with the holy God who has chosen to put his own heart in being your God, God ain't faking it. He really does love you. We must make a choice. Yes, a choice to ask ourselves, I hate this sometimes, the deeper questions. Do I truly know God or is he just a rule book? Does the Holy Spirit really live and move in me? Or am I just doing the Christian thing? Am I just a church person? Am I in love with God for real? Or am I just paying and fulfilling membership vows so I'm not found out or get rejected? Hard stuff. Stuff you can't control sometimes. Ask yourself and then let the word of God answer. What is really wrong with me here? That makes me, that makes me do this thing every time, everywhere. Make a scary choice to check yourself, to have others in the word of God check your motivation or else your heart will grow cold and you might start living a fake spiritual life and some of us are already there. I'm still fighting personally to get out of some of the stuff that I've been faking spiritually in my life. Yes, me too. There are areas it's easy just to go through the motions, y'all, with no emotion, right? With no inside heart change. Now, I'm not telling you to go out and sin until your heart changes. No, that wouldn't be right either. There's still consequences for that. What I'm saying is, hey, Lord, could you please let my heart catch up with what I'm doing? And then let what I'm doing catch up to where my heart really is. And that's what it means to be a fallen human, that there's this disconnect, right? The, 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 the cylinder's not all hitting right. The spark plugs and all fire at the same time. And sanctification is for your heart and your deed, your choice and your volition, right? Your, your love for God and your choices for God to come in concert with one another. But in order for that to happen, you have to actually go to God and say, guess what? I checked my heart. I'm not really in love with you. I don't really know Jesus. The Holy Spirit's really not alive in my life. I'm really not on fire for God. Help me, God. And it's a choice to do that. And I'm asking you to choose that. God is saying choose it. Don't just put your eyes on his word. Put your heart there too. God is saying stop playing hokey pokey where you put a little bit in and a little bit out. It ain't funny. It ain't no cute kids game. He is saying put your whole self in. And that's your heart and your emotions too. When you get in that circle, when you put your whole self in, your choices, your body, your heart, everything, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You will see yourself found wanting and needing and empty, and that's sometimes where God wants you to be. Because I know your heart ain't right in everything. I know it. Or you'd already be knocked out of here to heaven. choice God has called us to make. I'm trying not to go long on this. I'm having a hard time. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to pull it into the parking lot, parking space. But this thing's affected me. I'm up here in my orange and I don't feel festive, okay? <laughs> it don't match. Remember the heart and the thing don't match? Yeah. I'm happy about all the national championship, but look, the word of God came and it just won, okay? Some of my joy is gone. Ain't no parade for Clemson up here today. Dog really needed that. But God made me check my heart on that too. Doggone, he want Clemson too? No. 
I don't love football more than you, God. Yeah, right. Sometimes I choose it over him. Sometimes it gives me more joy than he does. Sometimes it delivers better than he does. Not really, but in my heart and mind, it seems like it. So will you give your heart to him or hold on to it for yourself? Will you give it to another thing or God or idol or false hope or false promise? Will you let it stay in the prison of somebody else beyond our behavior, our desires, our wants, our hopes, our dreams, your own personal motivations, all the little stuff you've written. Here's my vision for myself. Here's my dream for myself, driven by a heart and choices that have nothing to do with the Word of God or the Holy Spirit working in your heart. God is saying, will you give that up? And when you do, put your whole self in. You'll find a God who is promising our bad choices, who's already put him, his whole self in too. Which brings us to this final point. Now we know what God says is beginning. That if you choose right... You get prosperity, right? The, the, not, okay, let me explain you what the prosperity means. It, with King Solomon, prosperity meant if you do right, you have the ability and heart to care well for others and to worship me. That's prosperity. Are you prosperous? I don't know. Ask your kids, right? Ask your wife. Ask your husband. Are you prosperous? Don't look at the bank account. Are you prosperous? How's your prayer life? How's your joy and love before God? Huh? What's your hours of the day say you're concentrating on? Are you prosperous? Because prosperity means you can be a canopy of love and grace for those around you. That's why it says, love the Lord your God with your own, all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second commandment, unlike uh, like it, is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. The ability to love your neighbor as yourself is not just about having enough food or money or whatever, a big enough car to, to put everybody in. It means that you have a life that is sacrificial and loving enough to care for others. Prosperity. Now we know that they'll make uh, prosperity and security of having a person, God says, on the throne. That's how he makes it. If you follow me, you will have a person on the throne, right? I talked about the canopy, that somebody will be there to care for you. The King Solomon, that there'll be another king that follows me, another king that obeys me, and that kind of king will not cease to be. And if that king doesn't cease to be, guess what? Prosperity will continue. Man, I wrote this before God really started working on my heart. So please forgive me if it just seems trite. But let me tell you in football language where I am way too steeped up right now. Man, I wish I could have changed it. I tried to change it and I couldn't. But my Clemson Tigers are national champs right now. I love that. I want to paint walls orange in my house. My wife wouldn't let me wear my Tiger Paw pants. Thank you, baby, because this was a serious passage today, and I would look like a clown, and God ain't clowning right now. But the talk for Clemson is this, right? Now, after it's all been won, without their captain and leader extraordinaire, quarterback Deshaun Watson, will they continue to be able to hold, uphold or even create a dynasty? And the answer for most is no. When he's gone, an era of championships might be gone too. God is saying that in the peace and security that having a king, get this, a king that obeys God will never be lost if King Solomon follows and obeys and chooses and stays 
But if he doesn't, what? What we see after Solomon's death and the rest of kings, get ready, y'all, it's downhill from here, right? They will have scrubs for kings and leaders. They will, verse 7 says, lose the land. They will become a laughingstock, a one-hit wonder. They will suffer devastating consequence. Do you know why in large part it took 35 years between football national championship one for Clemson and the one we just got Monday? Some jealous person from NC State reported us for breaking NCAA rules. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we were penalized all sorts of things. And our college Hall of Fame coach was forced to resign. And then we lost scholarships. And we got a bad name. And kids were like, we're not going to that cheating school. And other schools were like, don't go to that cheating school. You might never win again. You know, in 35 years, it took to get back because we couldn't buy kids' cars anymore. That's not fair. Y'all laughing, y'all get people mama jobs. We know how it works. Bagman, all that stuff is real. Just ain't got caught. But the Bible is saying God is that jealous person whose emotions and heart is in it that will turn us in and turn us out and tear our very lives apart. That he will penalize us with consequences. We don't like that word. We don't use that word a lot in church. Consequences that we make unholy choices before him that he takes very seriously, violating his rules and hardened indeed. He is promising that his people, that he won't leave alone, that he will continue to visit them when they walk away from him with life-altering consequences. And that can take all sorts of forms. Get this. You can be successful in this world. But God put life-punishing consequences on your heart, on your ability to feel and love him and others to cut you and me off from not feeling driven all the time and guilty all the time. He might even give worldly success as a burden to keep and guiltily uphold under your own strength, letting its weight burden and crush you in your family and marriage and relationships and friendships. Some of us have had our eyes gouged out by God metaphorically. We can't even perceive right and wrong. We've looked at the word of God and said, you know what? God didn't mean this. It really means this. So I can sleep with who I want. I can drink what I want. I can smoke what I want. I can think what I want. I can watch what I want. How do you know? Because when I read the word of God, it says this. The Old Testament, that's not really part of God. The New Testament's a new thing. And all this foolishness, do you realize, could be God gouging out your spiritual eyes because of the consequence of disobedience? That's some scary stuff. You can't get right now. You don't know right from wrong. Am I working too many hours? You don't even know. Am I watching too much TV? Should I watch your show? Yes, I should because I'm an informed viewer and, and blah, blah, blah. And this will help me reach my non-Christian friends. And you ain't brought up Jesus' name to nobody in years. Right? We go crazy. And you think, where did this come from? It's what sin does to you, y'all. We've lost our ability. The GPS on our heart and world, we don't know what's wrong or right or what is too much or not enough. Some of us are watching like Solomon would. People we are called to care for, we love, suffer the consequences of our sins. Our kids and families and friends and neighbors and communities are crushed and lost and we are like dis disabled, right? We, we can't move forward. Not because God is lost or losing. Because the consequences of God are all up in our face. I told you he's living. He's holy and he's real. And we don't do a lot of these kind of sermons at Christ Central. God causes and lets us face the consequences of sin and sin choices against him and our relationship with him. 
but God has given us another choice in facing our consequences, hasn't he? What we see in this passage should look and feel familiar to every single one of you under the sound of my voice. If you can be honest with yourself, if you can be, I hope you can be, in this prebuke of Solomon is a total collapse of king and kingdom, a life that will be wrecked by sin consequence. Wait till you see it, y'all. And it starts with him doing really good. Like the world loving him, thinking he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then that's when things fall apart. And that is really bad news for all of us because as Solomon himself said in the prayer I talked about, we will and do sin. Everyone will and does sin and makes bad choices. But I've got good news too. God has given us those who are sure to sin and have sinned in bad choices. Another choice. We can deal with and face the consequences of bad choices before a holy God by ourselves. Or we can face our consequences another way. We can face our consequences in Christ. With Jesus. The Bible tells that God sent his son Jesus to be a king who would take the consequences of our bad choices on him. And we can face them by turning and facing the cross, y'all. By looking towards, by facing and turning towards the life and death of Jesus for us sinners. That Jesus came and died and suffered the consequences of our choices. A prebuke sacrifice for all the decisions we've made, right? And will make contrary to God's law and love. When you come to Christ, yes, you see your sin. You experience the consequences of your ways. But you face them by having the sacrifice of Jesus, of your consequences, hanging on him. God taking the penalty of our sins, our sin consequence, and his suffering for us all up in our faces through the gospel. And God will not and never let you, if you are his, forget that fact. So give. Give the reign of your messed up kingdom to him. Stop ruling and trying to overcome and face your own bad decisions and make life work for yourself on your own. Remember to lay the burden and condemnation of consequences on him. Repent, relent, release, relinquish your life of sin and suffering and bad and damaged hearts. Say, Lord, look, I can't, it doesn't seem like I can stop making the same choices. Could you please be the king for once in my life? Man, I was going through this passage and just hit me. I'm like, okay, God, you the king. My life is something, it's just something that's going to collapse into disaster. Yeah, all right, he's the pastor, he's been to seminary, he's walked with the Lord for a long time, whatever. But my choices sometimes, the condition of my heart sometimes is ultimately leading to a world of collapse without Christ Jesus' grace. Sometimes we believers, we got to remember and bend our knee. You the king. It's your kingdom. I can't face my consequences. All I do is make more. Take my consequences on your body. Take my collapsing kingdom. And redeem it. You don't have to wait for more consequences to pile up. I want you to give them your choices.
Don't give up. I know some of you have been believers for a while and you've given up on certain things changing. A positive choice is giving the things that you can't change right now. I can't stop thinking this way. I can't stop being addicted to this way. I can't stop. Lord, my heart is wrong. Give it to him. And I promise if you give it to Christ, you will know or some of you begin to have a king on a throne that will never leave or forsake you, but will change your heart and life. See, this prebuke, it's not a lasting rebuke for any of us. It's a chance of the, at the gospel that while we're yet sinners, Christ died and came to lead and reign and be the king for sinners like us. That's the good news. It's an announcement of our redemptive need and gift of King Jesus. Amen? We're going to continue through 1 Kings. It won't be the most pleasant experience. King Solomon is going to get to the American dream type of life. In fact, when God makes this announcement, he's already there. <laughs> the world thinks he's great. And it begins to fall apart. If your life is falling apart today, I hope you see it in the prebuke before you have to suffer a rebuke from God. But even in the rebuke, there's grace. I get rebuked a lot by God. Right? But there's grace. If you heard the message today and you're like, you know what, I, I, I don't love God. I don't know Christ. But my life is a total shambles and collapse. It's a laughing stock. If people were to really see it, if I had one of those cameras following me around and seeing what I really think and do, my life is, would be a laughing stock. God sees you and he's not laughing. He wants to redeem you. 